0: Hello and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing.
1: This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today's paper is titled, Data Programming, Creating Large Training Sets Quickly. It was published in NIPS 2016, a few months ago, uh, written by Alexander Ratner and other uh, colleagues at Stanford University. So the setup of this paper is that um, in many cases, you're trying to learn um, a model that makes some prediction, but we don't have uh, enough training data, enough uh, hand label training data. Uh, and it's very expensive to uh, find someone who is a domain expert to, to produce, to, to make these um, labels, to create these labels. Um, and oftentimes also the specifications of the problem change quite often and it's so you don't want even if you're willing to spend the money to construct this training set it may change in a few months and then it's going to be a huge investment so the proposal uh, the paper this paper is trying to make um, at a high level is that um, it, prop- it proposes a new paradigm for uh, generating training data it's called data programming um, and the idea is to programmatically create training sets, um, and the, the functions that he used to create these training sets uh, are written by a domain expert and uh, are meant to rapidly train uh, machine, machine learning systems. And So in data programming, instead of manually labeling each example, you would uh, describe the process by which the points could be labeled by providing a set of heuristic rules, uh, which they call labeling functions.
0: Hold on a minute, you just said automatically generate a whole bunch of training data, and we've talked about a whole bunch of automatically generated training sets in NLP, like the baby data set and various, like the Clever data set, other kinds of so-called question answering data sets but are automatically generated text. So this makes me a little bit nervous, so is this paper about automatically generating something that is supposed to be language but isn't actually language?
1: No, thanks for clarifying this. Um, no, so here I'm talking about generating the labels. The input, uh, so there is often like appear that we're interested in an input uh, which is in NLP is typically a sentence or or a word or uh, or some natural language, um, and then there is the label that we're trying to predict for this input. And here they're trying to generate the label. They're not trying to generate uh, the input. And there are there are many other um, uh, proposals that are also in the same space of like using unlabeled data um, and not requiring that we have a large training set. So this is what uh, all like unsupervised and semi-supervised learning literature is about. Uh, specifically, that paper mentions distance supervision as a relevant um, a relevant uh, approach. In distance provision, you're assuming that some of the knowledge base relations that you have um, in the... So you you assume that you have a knowledge base with a bunch of relations between entities and you go map these um, instantiate within uh, the text um, relations between um, dimensions of of these entities and assume that the, at least some of the instances will, will establish this relationship. Some of the textual mentions will establish this relationship in the knowledge base. Um, you can think of uh, this paper as a generalization of distance supervision, meaning uh, the function that you're using to label the training data can can look up the knowledge base and, and ask if um, if there is a relation between them, and if yes, then it it creates a label that co- that's consistent to this. Um, so there's also crowdsourcing. So instead of relying on experts, how can we rely on uh, non-expert annotators? Uh, it's kind of uh, list-related, but it's also re- like in the same space of like avoiding expensive uh, construction of data sets. Um, Co-training cool is the idea of um, Construct like using multi-view learning. Uh, like if you have multiple uh, classifiers using different features, you can um, combine their predictions basically in clever ways to uh, to annotate a whole bunch of um, unlabeled data. Um, so this is kind of uh, in the same spirit, but uh, but it's a different way of doing it. Um, yeah, and there's like um, uh, there's a few other related work that's discussed in the paper.
0: So, can you describe exactly what this model is doing?
1: Right. So, let's um, focus on. Uh, so, the paper focuses on a binary classification problem, right? So, we work. We uh, we have a logistic regression model. We're trying to minimize the logistic loss uh, using um, a linear model, and uh, we we have uh, we assume that we don't have label data. Um, and sometimes we would, but and the, the like the framework allows you to use label data when you have it, which is nice and, and important. <laughs> um, but what, what, what this framework um, allows you to do is to specify uh, a bunch of labeling functions. So the, these labeling functions takes the input, so we'll call the input x and the output uh, y and the output in this case. So the input x is just going to be something that you can featureize. Uh, you can like pass it through a feature uh, like extract features from it uh, could be hand-tuned or uh, like use something like an LSTM or or whatever um, distributed um, um, representation to, uh, to extract features from um, and the output Y is going to be um, either minus one or one and uh, the labeling functions that you are going to define as a domain expert uh, map um, you're just gonna really write a function um, that takes this X and generates minus one or one and at times where your uh, heuristic or your labeling function does not know uh, has no clue about this input it will generate zero um, and then um, yeah so for example uh, if we're trying to predict whether a given gene has a causal effect on a disease, the input in this case will be the pair, uh, the gene and, and disease pair, and the output uh, and maybe the context which occurs around them in a sentence. And then the output is going to be um, plus one if we know that there is a relationship between them, if there is a causal relationship, uh, minus one if we, know, if we know that there isn't and otherwise it's going to be zero. Um, and so the paper gives a few examples of such labeling function. One of them would be exactly what the distance vision is doing. So it looks up a knowledge base and sees if this pair has a relationship between it. If, if yes, then it returns one, otherwise it returns zero. Um, another one would look at specific um, words or phrases in the context that's between the two entities. Um, and uh, so if you see that the, the the words in between the string between uh, the gene and uh, the disease says includes the, the string uh, not cause then you would assume that this is a negative example um, and then you can also like do clever things like you can just like write whatever you want it's it's uh, at the end it's uh, you're using uh, your favorite programming language to, to write this
0: this sounds like we're just writing feature extractors to get features for a logistic regression classifier. What What's different? What am I missing here?
1: The difference is that we're treating these. Um, the values that you're returning are not going to be fed into the classifier, the uh, discriminative classifier. They're, they're going to be used as label data, so as, as the as the class you're trying to predict. They have a very specific semantics.
0: So uh, I think then the difference is uh, instead of writing a bunch of feature extractors that give me binary one-hot features that say this feature is present or it's not, I'm uh, making some assumptions about each individual feature and whether it correlates with the class label or not. Whether, whether Sorry, wh- whether it um, positively indicates the class label or whether it doesn't. So like the functions that you described are feature functions that we would have written, right? Like there there appears this substring in, in between these two words in a sentence. I would have right I would have extracted that as a feature for some relation extraction model. But now what you're saying is instead of that, say I think that this feature actually means like if I ever see this feature, it's very likely that um, the label should be positive. And if I see this other feature, it's very li- very likely that the label should be negative. And I write down a bunch of these assumptions, and those are my labeling functions, and I'm going to use them in some smart way.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what they're proposing. Okay. And of course, there are many other features that you can define um, and are likely to be useful. But you cannot confidently say, uh, most of the time, this feature would indicate that the the, predica- the, that the label is negative one, or that the label is one. So this does not obviate the need to write these features. Actually, the model that they use uh, the of the model the use at the end does use hand uh, hand tuned features. Uh, in addition to this, so they're like, uh, but but I agree, yeah. These uh, labeling functions are typically things that we would include in the feature space.
0: And so now this is sounding really similar to me to co training, where I have a, I guess co training is you have different feature sets. Um, and you train weights for the feature sets independently. Or I, sorry, you train them jointly. Um, and if, if it's true that the classifiers <coughs> are, make independent errors and are better than random, then you can make progress. So like, you have to have some assumptions on like the labeling functions that whoever the, the expert is writing here are better than random, otherwise you're going to be hosed. But if, if I just have each of my independent feature sets in the co-training setup as a single feature, that then gets away for downstream of this logistic regression classifier.
1: You could have have used uh, the same intuition to train two separate models, yes. Um, This is different in several ways, like one clear way in which it's different. You don't need table data in order to train the individual classifiers. Uh, But yeah, I I guess I didn't say yet uh, how they're using Okay, l- so
0: l- let me let you continue.
1: <laughs> okay, so once you define these labeling functions, the next step is to define a generative model for uh, generating the labeling functions and the uh, class labels. So you're not, the, just uh, this was confusing to me when I read the paper. Uh, the generative model is not trying to generate the input uh, to the classifier, it's not trying to generate the natural language. It's only trying to generate the labeling function and uh, the class labels, um, which is not typically the way we use the word generative
0: model. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds pretty pretty different.
1: Right. Uh, But anyway, so there are like two two versions of the generative model. One of them uh, assumes that the labeling functions are independent, and the other one assumes that there are some uh, dependencies between them. So it would make sense, for example, to Um, apply one labeling function and only if the result is uh, true then you use the other one Uh, so sort of like the heuristics we would write if we want to solve a prediction problem without uh, training a statistical model Um, but trying to learn these dependencies um, in, in a in a factor graph and um, so, like, I don't think the like the specifics of this uh, general model are, are very important, um, but at the end, what you get is you get um, a confidence score. Um, I would, yeah, I call it a confidence score in each labeling function, um, and also uh, a measure of how often this labeling function. Um, actually produces a label because the, every labeling function has an option to uh, output zero meaning i don't know how to label this thing um, and so that's what the generative model is is optimized um, so once the generative model is optimized you can use it uh, to, uh, to to get this uh, confidence score and uh, likelihood for uh, whether the labeling function will actually generate a label or not so, in order to optimize the uh, parameters of a generative model, we sum over all the uh, unlabeled examples in in the training set, and we use the generative model to get a, pr- a, a probability for each of these examples, um, each of these labeled examples given by um, given by the labeling function, and then we marginalize over um, over the uh, the possible values for uh, the correct label y, um, in order to get the overall probability for annotating, for just labeling this uh, this example. So what's weird here is that we don't have any signal to teach uh, us or like train the parameters of this generative model how to um, how to t- which labeling functions to trust more. But one of the some of the parameters, basically every labeling function has one parameter that um, like signifies um, its accuracy, the degree to which it, it, it correctly labels um, instances. Uh, so this is something that I didn't completely understand in the papers, it was not very clear.
0: It sounds really similar to me to work on how do you do um, confidence estimate, like accuracy estimation of people, crowd workers on Mechanical Turk. So there are a number of crowdsourcing papers by Dan Weld and other people who have looked at, um, given a bunch of annotations from people on some crowdsourcing platform and no labels at all to begin with, you need to both decide what are the actual labels and which people should I trust and how much. And it se- seems like a very, very similar problem to what's going on here, so.
1: That would be that would be a reasonable signal maybe if, uh, but it requires that you're very careful with the labeling functions. Um, you're assuming that, if there is a lot of disagreement between the labeling functions then they're like they're not they're not good
0: yeah you're you're relying on being able to uh, figure out through consensus the correct labels for at least some uh, of your data points and if like it's totally gameable if you have some adversarial workers yeah. um, but under some reasonable assumptions uh, you can do all right and i guess if you're in, the, in this paper, you're doing this data programming and you're assuming that the, the person who's writing these labeling functions is not out to get the, the learning algorithm. So, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it's probably OK.
1: Yeah, uh, so that's uh, also suggest that maybe an, like, an extension of this would be to try and learn the parameters of this certain model using a small amount of, uh, a small amount of label data. Um, and there is a, a later paper that was written by some of the same people. Uh, which we may have a chance to discuss in a future uh, episode that's very relevant to this. But once you have uh, this generative model that scores um, the labeling functions and and their uh, and their predictions sorry, and uh, and a label, then you can use um, then you can use these uh, probabilities to give different weights to different training examples. So that's basically, uh, the end of the story you you train um, uh, any kind of discriminative model that you like but give a different weight to each of the training examples that are automatically generated depending uh, using this generative model so it's it's a pretty it's a pretty flexible framework I'd say uh, I wasn't very clear on the guarantees uh, it makes because there's like various assumptions that are made throughout the paper so I'm not sure to the extent the extent to which these variable these uh, assumptions are gonna hold. So one thing that stood out, for example, is that they're assuming that um, the like the the classes the in this binary classification problem are going to be balanced. Um, so most of the time, like it's like about 50% of the cases the the predict the correct prediction is is one, uh, which is very rarely the case. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, in the experiments, they compare this to a baseline, their own baseline, where they define some heuristics on how to apply the same labeling functions. So um, we have a bunch of labeling functions written. You can either um, ask uh, a domain expert to write a bigger uh, function, like uh, another function that calls these labeling functions, to deterministically um, predict uh, the correct label, or use the data programming approach to do this. Um, and and they show this like uh, the show the experiments in two setups, where one of them uses hand-tuned uh, feature extraction, and the other uses an LSTM to extract features. Uh, the task here is uh, slot filling, uh, so the it's, it's a similar to like distance supervision, uh, the distance supervision methods, but they don't compare to uh, distance supervision um, or a, like any other well-established. Uh, baseline in this area so that was a little disappointing
0: I guess uh, for those who aren't familiar slot filling is the task of given an incomplete knowledge base uh, this is really popular in like DARPA grants and so it's often about like terrorist attacks or whatever you're, you're given some schema like um, we're looking for incidents of terrorist attacks and there will be like for instance a bombing, who did it how many injuries there were, where it happened. And each of these is a slot that you need to fill by looking at some collection of documents. And so it's relation extraction, essentially in aggregate over a corpus of documents.
1: Right, and uh, since we're doing binary classification here, we're only like looking at one of these slots at a time and trying to solve it. Um, so the results show that you get consistent improvements when you uh, when you go from like, this deterministic organization of which labeling functions to do first, and then what, um, to the data programming model. Sometimes the difference is large. Uh, like, um, I think the biggest uh, the biggest improvement I've seen was 5 F1 points from 37 to 42. That's in the pharmacogenomics uh, domain. Um, but yeah, it, it, like across the board, uh, we were seeing consistent improvements, pretty much. Um, and there is another table that shows uh, the coverage the their labeling functions had for various applications or various domains. Uh, so, like the the coverage that they had ranges from seven percent to fifty three percent. So in the unlabeled uh, data set, they were able to generate uh, the labeling function. Were able to generate a label for uh, for like fifty three percent of them, Um, and sometimes there will be a conflict. But the conflict is actually very low, which I find a little surprising, given that sometimes they have quite a number, quite a large number of. of labeling functions. So uh, in one of the domains or the applications, they had 146 labeling functions. Uh, I can only imagine how long it takes to write this. (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, but uh, the conflicts conflicts seem to be very low. Uh, Like the maximum conflict uh, reported is 2% uh, of the cases uh, which were labeled.
0: So did this seem like a method that you would want to use in your work?
1: I think it's interesting, uh, like it's a very practical uh, method. Um, I would, I would wait and see if other people also um, manage to get good results with it. Uh, but I potentially, yeah, if I had like uh, if I had um, a bigger bandwidth, I can try uh, many different things at the same time. That would be one of the things I want to try for sure.
0: Yes. Seeing the pitch in the paper and the way that you pitched it, it seems to me more like a, if you don't know much of what you're doing with machine learning or fancy algorithms, here's a simpler way for the layperson to get involved in doing machine learning. Is that is that a bad characterization of what's going on or is that fair?
1: Um, no, I don't think it's it's fair because just being good at machine learning doesn't obviate the need for training data. and. Like all these unlabeled, like unsupervised learning methods, are not good enough. Basically, <laughs> it's it, you don't when you don't have labeled data. You don't just hire someone who's good at machine learning. You also hire someone who can annotate data for you or can compile a clever data set for you. That's important.
0: Yeah. Okay. I can see that. So, th- so this is more a method to uh, quickly get or. Get without too much work uh, a bunch of labels for a bunch of unsupervised data that you have unlabeled data, right?
1: And use them in a conservative way. Uh, don't try the without trusting them too much. That's the thing that I think is important.
0: Okay, so the thing that makes that made me a little bit uh, that that made me think about this differently was that in addition to just getting some kind of labels, you're also making assumptions about the model that's going to come out on the other end. Yeah, so that means it's like a, a more limited kind of thing you can do it's not just hey here's a new way to get me more data more labels quickly it's if I'm willing to constrain myself to use a particular class of models here's a way to do it in a reasonable way
1: yeah well, the constraint is not actually very too restrictive if you ask me like uh, yeah you typically have it's very easy to give a different weight to every training example and that's really the constraint that you'd have for the discriminative classifier at the end. Which we a lot of time a lot of the times we do this when we have like uh, imbalanced classes. We would give different weights to different labels. Um, the I think my biggest concern about this paper is that. Um, I don't think the results are compelling enough to uh, to make me want to like to like to leave everything I'm doing and, and use it, right? So I think that's why I, I need to see more empirical evidence that it works. Um, so to be honest, like uh, the empirical results shown here are comparing a heuristic method that the like the authors wrote, which I, I trust they did uh, like a good job. They did the diligence to. Um, to, to do this in a careful way, uh, but it's not it's not as compelling a result as um, if you had uh, an existing uh, an existing uh, method that's comparable. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thanks, Valid, for telling you uh, telling us about this paper and for the interesting discussion. Next time we will uh, talk with Graham Newbig about some of his recent work.